This is The Media Mix, and I'm Claire Atkinson. On this final episode of season one, a compelling interview with Chris Brancato, the co-creator of the hit Netflix series Narcos. Chris is the showrunner behind another hit, Godfather of Harlem, and he's here to share some news about his latest series, Hotel Cocaine. Both shows are for Amazon's MGM+. One thread running through all three series, The Drug Trade. The tagline of Hotel Cocaine is that every pleasure has a price. And so I think what I seek to do is, first and foremost, my job is to entertain people through the medium of television series. And secondarily, if you're using drugs as a centerpiece of the criminal activity being depicted, that it's very important to show that the outcome for most of these people is jail or death. Chris Brancato is our guest for this episode. We hear what he's doing to tamp down the glamorization of the drug world in entertainment. His thoughts on the industry, the strikes, plus how his latest project, Hotel Cocaine, came to be. I connected with Chris during Content London, where thousands of leading content creators meet to network, learn, and form new relationships. Earlier this year, Amazon announced that Brancato's Hotel Cocaine would be one of its original series on MGM+. It debuts in 2024, so be on the lookout for it. Here's how Chris Brancato describes it. Hotel Cocaine is about uh, the Mutiny Hotel in Miami, which uh, still exists today, but was in its uh, heyday in the late 1970s, where it was kind of the epicenter of uh, newly rich Miami cocaine dealers, DEA agents, CIA agents, movie stars, rock stars, you know, a whole a whole interesting assortment of, of characters who gave the hotel its moment in time. Uh, it primarily fueled uh, by Dom Perignon champagne and lots of cocaine. Fun. Obviously, it's about drugs. Narcos was about Pablo Escobar and the drug trade in Colombia and Mexico. And really, both shows are about glamorous people living rich lives and having fun and parties and clubbing and music and cars and girls. But there's a deeper message in both of the shows. And that is what you have a message here to society, right? Well, Hotel Cocaine, it came to me because a friend of mine who was an actor on Narcos named Maurice Comte, who played the Colombian police captain who went after Pablo Escobar, Maurice told me that his father had been the general manager of the Mutiny Hotel, which I had no idea what it was at the time. And as he described it to me, I said, well, that would make a kind of interesting series, you know, um, Casablanca, but with the, the backdrop of Casablanca, the movie is World War II. This, the backdrop is the war on drugs. And I, I took the story of Maurice's father, Roman Comte, and by necessity had to highly fictionalize the story in order to give it the drama that was necessary. And so in the show, Roman Comte is tasked by the DEA to spy on his estranged older brother uh, named Nestor, who is a Miami's biggest coke dealer. And so Roman, who is not involved in the drug trade, is, is forced to spy on his brother because if he doesn't, his younger daughter will be taken away from him 
just simply because he works in a nightclub with lots of cocaine being sold. So in any in any case, that's the central premise of Hotel Cocaine. And I'm well aware from doing Narcos and doing subsequent to that Godfather of Harlem, which is about Bumpy Johnson, a heroin dealer. I like the crime genre uh, in particular. I suppose my stock in trade is the drug crime drama. But it's important to me uh, from Narcos onward that, uh, well, let's put it this way. I have an understanding that these shows can, in some senses, glamorize the lives of drug dealers or make it even appear to be a uh, pleasure-seeking at its finest, so to speak. And, and I was particularly attuned to that when I saw the reactions to Narcos, which fundamentally were about the DEA agents who went down there and worked with the Colombian government and Colombian military and Colombian police in order to end the scourge that Pablo Escobar had had begun down there. But I, I found in the social media commentary about the show that a lot of people were rooting for Pablo Escobar. And, and some of that had to do with the charisma of our star, Wagner Mora. But it also became apparent to me that people like to watch outlaws and that, and that people root for outlaws. And so in some... Um, panels that I did after Narcos ended, people would ask me, you know, hey, how do you feel about the fact that Escobar is kind of glamorized in the show? And it led me to think a little bit more than perhaps I had at the beginning of doing Narcos about what the effect of writing and producing this stuff and sort of putting it out in the universe, uh, what what effect it had on society and on, um, for lack of a better word, my own soul. On the one hand, I believe that that we as viewers should be able to watch subject matter that is dark or dangerous and hopefully have the moral compass to not want to follow in Pablo Escobar's footsteps. I remember early on, we had a meeting with President Santos in Colombia before we started shooting Narcos. And he said, I hope that the series does reflect that all of those big time Coke dealers, especially Escobar, but, but, most of the rest either ended up dead or in jail. In other words, the, the forces of law prevailed in the end. Further to that, the tagline of Hotel Cocaine is that every pleasure has a price. And so I think what I seek to do is, first and foremost, my job is to entertain people through the medium of television series. And secondarily, if you're using drugs as a centerpiece of the criminal activity being depicted, that it's very important to show the the outcome for most of these people is jail or death, and that that the use of the substance itself has a very, very dark side. In the late 70s, when our show takes place, cocaine was, was not viewed as a particularly dangerous drug. It was viewed as a glamorous drug. And it wasn't until the mid-80s when some athletes died of cocaine overdoses that people started to really fully understand the physical danger of the drug itself. Our show tries to depict uh, mostly the statement that I think is basically true, which is that for every gram of cocaine that someone does in a pleasurable atmosphere in Miami or any place else, there's actually a long trail of dead bodies leading back to South America where the drug is grown and produced. So the show tries to reflect that reality and hopefully allows viewers to you know, to see that every pleasure does have a price and, and hopefully, you know, not to use these substances 
you know, as we discussed, nobody could help but binge watch Narcos when it came out because, as we talked about, shows about drugs are also highly addictive. Tell us about, like, help the audience visualize what the show looks like because it's set in the 70s. You get to see the clothes, you get to listen to the music in the clubs, and you get to see those fantastic cars. Tell me where it was shot. Like, help us kind of see it. Well, at first, as we determined that the the show was going to be set in 1978 Miami, we were uh, fully cognizant that, that Miami of 2023 doesn't look at all like Miami of the 70s. So we went to Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic to, to scout locations that would be more in line with, with the, the 70s Miami that we were trying to depict. And it turned out that the Dominican Republic, both the cast of the water, the color of the water there, the sunshine, the palm trees, and in particular, a location we found that was a, an operable hotel that was at about 10% capacity, we realized that that was the spot where we should shoot it in order to depict late 1970s. Miami. We built the Mutiny Club, the interior of the club, so that, of course, we could control the environment there because the hotel we were using for the lobby and the and the front port cochere were all active working hotel and the the real hotel did not have a, a sexy club attached to it so that was a stage build we managed to attract a crew really compliments to our director producer executive producer Guillermo Navarro who uh, in a former life was a director of photography for Guillermo del Toro uh, Guillermo Navarro won an Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth and participated in many of Del Toro's greatest successes. So Guillermo was our our visionary, and also Ricardo Del Rio was our our producer who who pulled together a crew from all over Latin America. So we've just had an incredible costume department and locations department and production design department, uh, all of which we think gives a very um, authentic look to the period. Yeah, and tell us who's in it. You've got some fabulous actors in it. Well, one of the things that I've also learned in making shows that take place, well, with different ethnic groups is that, for example, in the South American world, there are Argentinians and there are Colombians and there are Bolivians and Peruvians. In other words, every single country has a different accent, has a different, you know, basic look of the people. And so we were determined to be very, very faithful to the actual nationality of the actors we cast, which in some ways was a help because our two leads, Danny Pino and Yul Vasquez, are actually Cuban, Cuban-Americans, and that's realistic to the times. And so we had a smaller group of actors to choose from for each of these different nationalities. So, for example, the antagonists of the Cubans in this first season of the show are the Colombians. So we hired real Colombian actors. And if an actor is, is from Mexico, then they depict a Mexican, you know, portion of the trade. So that allowed us to hire some amazing people. Danny Pino is probably most well known for a a long stint on Law & Order SVU. Yul Vasquez has been in many, many movies and and television series. And those men are both wonderful human beings and very, very fine actors. We also had as the DEA agent who forces Roman Compte, played by Danny, to to spy on his brother, played by Yule, Michael Chiklis, who's most famous from The Shield. And Michael's incredible. He has a great 70s mustache and definitely um, fills the shoes. 
brilliantly. Yeah, he's a DEA agent, right? And then tell us about Mark Feuerstein too. Well, one element that we wanted to try to um, suggest in the show was also the what was running through America at that time in the mid to late 70s, which, which was this sort of sexual revolution, uh, a hedonism, a kind of embracement of different philosophies like EST and, you know, meditation and such. And so Mark who's uh was a, the lead character on a show called the royal pains mark is the owner of the hotel in real life that man's name was burton goldberg in 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 our show we call him burton greenberg in any case mark adds an element of the the sort of zaniness of that self-help movement of the 70s while also being inexorably drawn into the drug trade that's that's part of his hotel and his character serves not only as a kind of comic relief but also over his journey over the course of the eight episodes he comes to see that the pleasure aspect upon which his hotel is based carries a lot of pain behind it um, obviously, we've had the writer's strike that shut down a lot of production across the world. Tell us, how did that affect you? And how have you managed to get everybody back together again? And, and when can we see the show? Is Everybody's asking me, when's it on? And I can't answer that yet. Well, we had finished our scripts prior to the strike. So we were able to go and shoot the show in the Dominican Republic. And about four episodes in, the actors went on strike, which now meant we had to shut down. So we're actually going back in early January. We've just actually started prepping now in in the Dominican Republic. And we start to go back to actually shoot the the remaining four episodes in early January. And I'm hopeful that the show will be on uh, in the summer, you know, June of 2024. Uh, At least that's what I've been told. Do you have any thoughts on the Hollywood strikes and, and what the unions were able to achieve for talent? Well, I think, you know, nobody wants to go on strike and everyone is aware of the vast collateral damage that happens beyond just writers and actors when production shuts down. So I don't think it was anything that was entered into lightly and it was nothing that people didn't take very seriously as a um, essentially trying to Uh, address certain issues that we did think were very important, both writers and actors. In my mind, one of the first of those is the ability of artificial intelligence to create scripts, to create likenesses of actors. And so there needed to be very firm protections put into place so that we're not all um, replaced by the machines, you know, to quote the Terminator. And, And then secondary to that was you know, we, we live in a landscape where some sometimes you see the heads of these companies making, um, you know, 100 or $200 million a year when the average writer can barely struggle to pay their mortgage because writing is a show-to-show job and acting even more so. And so there had to be some sort of a fundamental redress or readdress of the, of the salary structure just out of basic fairness. We are the ones, writers, actors, crew, production designers, clothing designers, the production assistants on every show. We're the ones who go make the shows that enrich these companies and that hopefully provide entertainment for viewers. So it was important that on the acting and writing side that get looked at. And hopefully as we continue down the line with the Teamsters and with the production side of the business, they also get the proper salary increases that they need to survive. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also mention Godfather of Harlem, which is another show that you're behind. Can you talk about your writing process, Chris? Do you squirrel yourself away on a Sunday? Do you do it every morning at 6 a.m.? Or do you go in the shower and think about it? Like, how do you come up with these characters and the words? Like, tell us about how that creativity strikes you. Well, all of the above. Sundays, Saturdays, in the mornings, in the evenings, thinking about it in the shower. But what I would say to people who uh, who want to be part of the film and television writing business is just a few quick things. The first is, uh, much more so than when I began my career, there's a vast uh, storehouse of knowledge about how to do it. The first few scripts of mine, if you read them, Claire, were awful. I had no understanding of the underlying technique of writing for film or television. I had no idea that, you know, you can look at a Mercedes Benz and on the outside it looks great, but there's a lot of stuff going on underneath that make the car actually work. And those things can be learned. In other words, there's a certain level of talent to which you can reach. And that's, you know, that's, that's, genetically given let's just call it that but there's a ton that can be learned about how to write scripts how to write movie scripts how to write tv shows that is available both on youtube uh, hundreds if not thousands of books uh, many of which i've studied over the course of my career and then of course uh, what when i talk to friends of mine who are writing scripts or attempting to write scripts uh, who aren't yet professional writers they'll they'll say wow well it's really hard to get like 2 or 3 hours a day to to work on a script much less 8 or 10 and i say you don't need 2 or 3 you actually need 10 minutes a day but you need it every day in other words consistent advice consistency exactly consistency is the key because what i did earlier on in my career when when facing a blank page was so daunting was i i remember saying to myself you know you, you just you can't do this eight hours you don't know enough yet okay make it less make it two and then even two seemed insurmountable and okay well let's just try 10 minutes and then what happens is slowly but surely suddenly the 10 minutes became an hour then the hour became two hours as you started to get more and more into your story and into the ideas. Another thing is to study the great movies and the great television shows that you like to watch. I like to also point out to people that it's not just the writer and the characters. There's the writer, the characters, and then the viewer who watches those characters on screen. So it's actually a triangle. And what you're trying to do as a writer is create movements and actions and reactions by the characters that affect the third party, which is the viewer. And so by watching television or movies, you can see, gosh, what made me feel so sad in this moment? What made me laugh? You know, what made me cling to the edge of my seat? You know, all all of those things are actually things that can be studied and used in one's own work. So while I discourage outright plagiarism, there's also a phrase that I've always heard related to writing, which is, I see so far because I stand on the shoulders of giants. So in other words, I I use other people's work as an inspiration. And sometimes just by changing the circumstances of a particular plot, you're actually doing the same thing as a move that you would see in the movie The Godfather. But it doesn't come off that way. I was just about to ask you if The Godfather was one of your influences. Can you share who you watch, who you read, who you like? 
Well, sometimes I joke that I'm so busy trying to write that I barely get a chance to read uh, and watch movies. That said, I'm obviously a fan of the more successful crime dramas. That's why I like to write them, is, is those are the shows I like to watch. Um, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, you know, The, the Wire, you know, the, the, the obvious ones that everyone seems to like. And then, you know, uh, in particular, I've watched over the last 10 or 15 years, the explosion of international television of a very, very superior quality. Sometimes the budget levels of those shows are much lower than uh, North American production, where we just have more viewers in the United States. So the budgets are bigger. But but the writing quality of Fauda or um, a couple of the French shows I've recently seen that have to do with cop stuff are just the writing is so good that the budget level almost doesn't matter and as a matter of fact there was a series a colombian series called el patron del mal you know that was about pablo escobar it was 66 episodes and as i started to watch that as a kind of preparation for doing narcos i thought wow this is this is kind of addictive i'm, I'm watching one episode after another and i wondered to myself if narcos at only 10 episodes in the first year would have that same addictive quality. I really didn't know for certain, but it, it appears appears that it did. Tell us about how you got into the business. What brought you to the t TV business? And was that always your intent in life? No. My intent coming out of university was to become an investment banker and make so much money that I'd then be able to just <laughs> easily write write books. I thought I'd write the great American novel. My, my mother was a novelist uh, in the young adult category, and so I knew that one could make a living from writing. The only economics course I ever took in college was called Econ 101, and I got a C. So that pretty much ruined my chances of being a very successful investment banker right off the right from the jump. So uh, a friend of mine who I graduated college with was very handsome fellow, very good actor, and he started to get roles in TV series. And I remember him handing me a television script that he was going to be he was going to be on the show. And I read it and I thought, well, this isn't very good. I'm, I'm sure I can do better than this. And the truth was I couldn't because I didn't understand any of the understructure. I didn't understand the mechanics of how one makes a script work. But I was attracted to the idea of writing for television and film. And so through the process I described before, reading books about it, watching shows, getting the tutorials that were available then only through books. Now you can see so many YouTube videos and great tutorials that are yeah. that are online. I think Michael uh, Wright, who's at MGM in charge of uh, programming there, told us the book was the hit maker that he recommends to people, right? Well, yes. Well, that's a very good book about the business of show running and of creating hit shows for television. I'm talking more about books that are about how to write a script, uh, uh, Making a Good Script Great by Linda Seeger is one of my favorites. Um, the Sid Field books are the most you know, famous, popular early screenwriting books. But if you go into almost any you know, freestanding bookstore or certainly Amazon or any other online place and just look up television writing books, you, you'll, you'll see a hundred of them. And for me, each and every one of them has at least a couple of nuggets of knowledge that then become your own. You know, in other words, I can give you all kinds of expressions and tips and techniques, but they come from different places. And I formed my own method of, of understanding how best to approach a script. What was your big break? How did you kind of like break into the, the business? 
Well, I spent a number of years uh, in my 20s in New York City trying to get traction in a business that was centered in Los Angeles. And finally, at age 28, living at home with my parents or having to move back home with my parents, I realized, okay, I have to get out to Los Angeles. And once I got out there, I realized, oh, there actually is a business where people get hired to write these things because it seemed almost magical at the time. And one of my first shows, maybe my second show that I wrote on was Beverly Hills 90210, which most of my um, cousins still think is the best thing I ever did. But I eventually, I also wrote for The X-Files in its infancy. And um, and was largely rewritten by the much more experienced people on that staff. So I had a few early shows that were well known, and then and then there was a bit of a dry spell for a number of years, and um, and then television changed. You, you could actually write darker material that I was more interested in as a, as a viewer, and uh, and that culminated with with getting a chance to to create Narcos. Um, dare I ask what you're conceptualizing next? Or are you is your mind still very much in the hotel cocaine world right now? Well, it is. It is. We've gotten a fourth season order for Godfather of Harlem. So I'm excited about that and, and game planning what we're going to do in the fourth season. And also I've talked to MGM Plus about uh, yet another criminal gang uh, called the Westies, which is essentially America's version of the Peaky Blinders, who existed in New York City in the very late 70s and uh, and 80s is the time period we're going to cover. So hopefully they'll like that script, which I'm working on right now with a fellow writer. And, you know, maybe they'll put that on someday. Yeah, it's funny you should mention Peaky Blinders because we had uh, Karen Manderback on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about the show and about being an independent producer and how tough it can be. Just to wind up, you have your own production company. How is it trying to sell shows? Well, first of all, I heard your podcast with Karen and I thought it was fascinating. And uh, yes, I have my own, you know, production company, as it were. It's me and a couple other people who who sift through ideas. You know, we receive uh, books and articles and, and such from various agencies. We work with other writers to develop projects. And then, and you know, and then fundamentally it's okay. You know, what's the next idea that I'm going to write either by myself or with a fellow writer? Uh, and so, so, yes, it's, it's, it's a small but um, active concern. Excellent. Uh, Chris Brancato, thanks for joining the Media Mix. I really appreciate your time and I cannot wait to see Hotel Cocaine. Good luck with the filming. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Chris Brancato, creator of Hotel Cocaine and Godfather of Harlem, as well as co-creator of Narcos. Like what you're hearing on the Media Mix, check out our other episodes. As mentioned, we have an episode with Karen Manderback, who is a huge independent producer working out of London. She talked to us about her hit show Peaky Blinders a couple of weeks ago. And we're mapping out the next season, so feel free to pitch ideas to the Media Mix US at gmail.com. And be sure to stay in the mix by subscribing to my newsletter, The Media Mix. Thanks for downloading this episode. A special thanks to EP Jamie Maglietta and Ray Hernandez. And as ever, the Situation Room Studios are partners for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.